Listeners, we have a treat for you on the show today, a conversation I've been dying to have truly for 25 years. As my favorite show of all time, Sex and the City, premiered 25 years ago, a quarter century ago this past summer. I have seen every episode multiple times. I know many of you are just like me in that regard. And the writers of the show, like Cindy Shupak, who is here today, I'm so excited for you to hear this great conversation. Jenny Bix, Julie Rottenberg, Elisa Zaritsky, Amy B. Harris, Liz Tuccio, Darren Starr, Michael Patrick King, on and on are some of my personal heroes and heroines. Cindy either wrote or co-wrote 16 of the show's 94 episodes, so certainly not an insignificant amount. Of those, six were nominated for an Emmy. Six of the 16 nominated for an Emmy, and she won two of them. So stay tuned for the outro of the episode. I'm going to detail for you listeners what happens in all 16 of the episodes Cindy wrote or co-wrote. So fun fact of all of the show's writers, which I named for the most part up there, there's a few others as well that did one or two or three. Jenny Bix wrote right around the same amount as Cindy did. The only writer to write more than Cindy and Jenny was Michael Patrick King, who wrote or co-wrote 31 of the 94 episodes. So Cindy is a power player on Sex and the City. And in addition to being a writer on the show, Cindy was also an executive producer. She is now a director as well. She directed her first episode of television in 2018. Sex and the City is nowhere near where Cindy's career starts or stops. She has worked on other shows like Modern Family, Everybody Loves Raymond, Divorce, Fleischman is in Trouble. She is also the author of three books, which we will talk about at the top of the show. You should definitely add these to cart. The New York Times bestseller, The Between Boyfriends Book, a collection of cautiously hopeful essays. The Longest Date, Life as a Wife, which was a comic memoir about marriage and trying for a baby. And finally, We Waited for You, Now We're a Family, which is a children's book. She has written for magazines like Glamour and O, the Oprah magazine, where she had her own column. She has three Golden Globes, two Emmys for her work on Sex and the City and Modern Family. Cindy is a Midwestern girl like me. She is from Tulsa and she graduated from Northwestern. There is so much to dig into here and we celebrate her entire career in this episode and also what she is doing to support writers, both emerging and established. So let's get right into it. Cindy, I have truly, no exaggeration, wanted to have this conversation with you for the last 25 years. And as I outlined in the intro to our conversation, your career is so much more than Sex in the City. We could probably be here all day if we went deep into your entire career. And we are going to talk about your three books, but mostly we're going to talk about Sex in the City and the, and the three books that you've written. And I'm very excited about it. Welcome to the show. And thank you for making my 12-year-old dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I'm glad to meet your 12-year-old self and you today. My 12-year-old so- self was sneaking around <laughs> watching HBO, Sex in the City. But the great thing was my mom was also watching Sex in the City. And this is in 1998 when there's no DVR. So if she was busy, then I was busy too. But I just I had I sat Cindy, I sat there with my finger on the power button of the TV in my bedroom, just in case for whatever reason she should 
step away but she of course she never did because it's the best show of all time so so funny my daughter's (laughs) I have a 12 year old daughter now so it's funny to imagine I haven't quite introduced her to it yet but uh. and and when I think about being 12 and watching sex in the city that I was not permitted to I didn't (laughs) back. so just for just for the record but before we get into all that I want to talk about your three books so you have the New York Times bestseller the between boyfriends book which is a collection of cautiously hopeful essays you've got the longest date life is a wife that's a comic memoir about marriage and trying for a baby and you've got the children's book we waited for you now we're a family and so how do you transition from writing for the screen because yes you've you've written for sex in the city but you've also written for everybody loves raymond modern family you've directed you have a multifaceted career so tell us about those books because i do want to make sure that my listeners know that yes i i was first introduced to you through sex in the city but you are so much more than that. So tell us about your books and I will make sure to link all three of these in the show notes too. Okay, great. And also cindyshoepack.net. I've got this all on there along with like some writing tips and stuff, but. Oh, I know we're going to talk about that too. I love that. (laughs) Thanks. I just put that together over the writer's strike. Anyway, the books, they're very much a part of kind of my whole Sex in the City story, actually, because the first one, the Between Boyfriends book, um, I I went to journalism school and it was very hard news oriented and you had mm-hmm. to keep yourself out of the story. And it wasn't until I started reading some female writers that were writing the kind of things like Carrie wrote that were mm-hmm. uh, very conversational and funny and modern and about their lives now that I started thinking that's the way I wanted to write. And when I first moved to New York out of college, I wrote a piece called Only in New York that got published in a magazine and it kind of started everything for me. And that's one of the essays in the Between Boyfriends book. But I, you know, an editor, an editor read it and wanted me to write more magazine. And then also a TV producer saw it and told me I should be thinking about writing comedy. So that one essay started everything. And then over the years, I continued to do an essay about dating for glamour, uh, And then those essays I kind of compiled into the Between Boyfriends book. And it was funny because that came out while I was on Sex and the City. And Mm -hmm. those essays were partly what got me onto Sex and the City because I had this, this, you know, pile of essays that were sort of Carrie-esque that I had written. Yeah. So so anyway, those have been, that's what that book is. And then when I got married, I wanted to write about marriage in the same way I had written about dating like as openly because I feel like people kind of close ranks when they get married and also it was about our baby quest which is another thing that so many women go through of like the infertility or and then you know gay couples egg donor sperm donor all of that so um I wanted to write about that journey that led to us adopting our daughter who's now 12 your who is now 12, the work. age I was when I started <laughs> watching your work for the first time, even though I was definitely not allowed to. So, <laughs> yeah, so that book's it. also like comic essays of about being married and the baby quest. And then the children's book, which I just wrote, was um, it's called We Waited for You. And it's mm-hmm. very much like a celebration for a child that was waited for because it took long, you know, either to find the partner that you finally met that you had mm-hmm. a child with. So mm-hmm. anyway, they kind of trace my life. I'm divorced again. So I'm back in the sex in the city dating realm, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> anyway, God, God bless you. Cause I'm there too. And it's, it's hell out here. So <laughs> three cheers to us, but <laughs> we're out here, but I love how you're 
your work really sell, you know, celebrates kind of the arc of womanhood, right? Like from the dating to now I'm married to now I'm having a child. And maybe both of those things took a little bit longer than I anticipated. I mean, I'm right there in the same boat and it's, and then it's just such an arc of, of, of woman's story. And that's, I've always, I mean, yes, of course I love the sex in the city work, but I love the books too. And listeners, please pick up these books. I have not read the children's book, admittedly. That is something, that is something well, and I think I'm going to want to read that because I just turned 37 this week. And so my, I'm anticipating that, you know, who I don't know, but who knows, like I might be someone that I, I already I've waited longer than I wanted to for my child. Right. But right. Um, I, I need to read that too, but I love the diversity of your work. Cause of course you've done screenwriting, right. You've done um, memoirs, you've done children's books, it's, you've done essays. You've you used to have a column for O magazine. I mean, you just have a very multifaceted career. So I'm, I celebrate it all, but Thanks. so you, you mentioned something just a minute ago that, that piqued my interest. So you so how did you because you if I'm not mistaken you joined the show Sex and the City as a writer in season two and mm-hmm. you wrote your first episode for them in 1999 the show was a big hit by then already so how did you get the gig were you approached for it did they read your work and say this is a perfect fit for us um well you know what it, it wasn't a giant hit yet when I um it was like kind of starting to get known but it was you mm-hmm. know HBO wasn't even that big yet so I'm mm-hmm. excited you found it and your mom found it but what happened was I had been writing with a writing partner for my whole television writing career this um, woman who was older than me and had kids and was very much like in the world of we kept ending up on family shows so we were on like coach and then everybody loves Raymond and everybody loves Raymond was a great show to be on and mm-hmm. such nice people and I mean, it was like the dream show I've been waiting for, except we were going to break up as partners and we needed to write separately. So we each wrote a, and everybody loves Raymond because when you're writing partners, you can't get your next job based on that. That's why the, that was the other reason it was great that I had those essays because that was a sample of just my voice. Mm-hmm. So so I wrote my own Everybody Loves Raymond. And then I had a friend, Jenny Bix, working on Sex in the City the first mm-hmm. season. And she said, you should try to I was going to write a spec script, which is the way you get jobs, or at least that when I was doing this, I think some people still mm-hmm. do, where you write like a sample of what you would write for a show. I was going to do that. And my friend Jenny said, you should try to pitch a freelance episode, which was really generous of her because I think a lot of people, you know, it was like a great gig and she was really happy to share. She was the only woman working with uh, Michael and Darren at that time. Mm-hmm. And they might have had a small other staff, but um so she told me I should think about freelancing. And then Phil Rosenthal, who was running Everybody Loves Raymond, was kind enough to let me do that while I was working on Raymond, which was kind of a big ask. And then that's when I wrote The Chicken Dance. Yeah, I went, I went in and pitched all these ideas I had in a journal. And they were like, do you have any bad ideas? And that's never happened to me before, but it was just the perfect combination of show mm-hmm. and what I was interested in talking to my friends about. So I wrote the chicken dance as a freelancer. I got to go to the table read in New York to hear it. And then, um, and after that, they, I actually, they asked me if I would want to join the show. And I think my dad, who's an accountant was horrified. I was leaving everybody loves Raymond. It was a lot of money and it was a really steady gig and nobody, him along with a lot of people hadn't heard of sex in the city or even HBO. But um, the year I joined, then we won a golden globe for the first season Mm -hmm. and I remember being at the Golden Globes that's when it felt like oh people are actually watching this and and liking this it Mm -hmm. felt like just this little 
thing we were doing. This little thing in the writer's room that you were doing. By the way, uh, three Golden Globes, two Emmys. So nothing to shake one's head at there. I am um, just so, so it's not even just about Sex in the City, although admittedly that is my favorite show of all time. But this is really the number one question I've wanted to ask you for 25 years, because this is truly my dream job. So if someone asked me to pick my number one dream job ever, it would truly be to be a writer for a show like Sex in the City, specifically Sex in the City, to be in that writer's room. Because I, I'm a writer and I am a solo writer, right? And by the uh-huh. way, I want to mention Jenny Bix. Um, no, I don't know if you've ever taken the time to count. I, I did this morning for on your behalf, by the way. So Michael Patrick King wrote 31 of the 94 episodes and you and Jenny are tied at 16. So, <laughs> so you are basically the number two, like tied for second, as far as the number of episodes that you wrote. So, and, and I think if there's so many different people, especially women that I think of when I think of the writers of the show, but you are, your voice is in there so much and so many of the iconic episodes or the iconic scenes that we think of when we think of the show. It, and I'm going to talk, talk about all of that in the outro when you're not here. And I don't, I don't need to tell you what you wrote. You wrote it. You remember. <laughs> and, but that, but my dream job would to be in a writer's room and not necessarily for that show, but definitely for that show. So if for no one else's sake, but mine, can you take us inside a writer's room? And, and I, one of the things I love about you, Cindy, is that you are a writer's writer. You love to give advice. You love to, you give it freely on your website, which which everyone should check out. And that means so much. I mean, I'm a little bit established in my career, but I wish I had known about those resources when I was beginning my career. I think you said that they were new. There's so many, such good advice, but what, okay. So what is a writer's room like that? Like what's a typical day or week at the office for you? Like when you're, when you're writing for a show like that? Yeah, let me answer that. But I wanted to just interject also that Jenny Bix and I co-wrote Splat, which was the I know, season. yeah, and that was the only episode we co-wrote. It was so fun, and we just like walked back and forth to each other's apartments when we were working on the script. And Michael Patrick King, it was his idea to do that really iconic fight between Carrie and Miranda outside mm-hmm. the funeral mm-hmm. when Carrie's going to go to Paris, and Miranda doesn't think she should. So we wrote that episode together and it just was named one of like the 25 best episodes of television ever which was and that so was Emmy, Emmy nominated too <laughs> I can't remember if it won the Emmy but it was one of your Emmy nominated uh, episodes yeah it did it and then I read about you that you also um made a big leap of faith to write full-time at a certain point which I did I totally changed right? careers when I was 31 I went through a terrible breakup and kind of had a for lack of a better term a quarter life crisis moment where I was like well Every, all the chips are down. And so why not just go for it? Because if I fail, then I, everything's already failing. Already. So if I fail again, then it'll just be par for the course at this point. But yeah, you're right. I didn't become a full-time. I have a journalism degree as you do. I went to Kansas, you went to Northwestern, but um, I didn't become a full-time writer until I was 31. So yeah, I was a late right. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a leap of faith. I um in a writer's room, well, in the Sex in the City writer's room, particularly, it was so fun because it was really like group therapy. I mean, you, you the writer's room starts during pre-production. So you have some months where you're just breaking the season and talking about the stories and the arcs for the different characters and what some like themes or Carrie's questions could be. And then um, it kind of becomes like a giant grid where you have like 
well, maybe the first episode is about forgiveness because she's trying to get back together with Aiden and can he forgive her? And then you think, what could be a Samantha story that could be on that theme? Or sometimes you don't start with the theme. You start with like, we know Carrie's relationship is going to be here for the first three episodes. So how do we balance that out against others? So it's kind of like a big puzzle that you're working out for the season mm -hmm. in the writer's room together before you even start writing and that's definitely before you're filming so that period is kind of blue sky and fun and that's where we talked about things like um okay if Miranda's going to be a mom what are all the things we've already seen on television of somebody who's a new mom and how do we avoid those so what do we not want to see what do we do want to see mm -hmm. um and so that helped to, to kind of and then we'd always share stories of our own uh I mean, in a good writer's room, I think in any room, like even in Raymond also, we brought in our own stories of our families and our sibling rivalries and our parents. And those became the best shows, I think, because they had, you know, this core of relatable personal truth. And it was the same as Sex in the City. It would be coming in to cry about your bad dates or, mm -hmm. you know, what people who sick or a parent died or, and, um, you know, there was time because we were all friends and loved each other to just comfort each other. But then there would usually be a point where it's like, okay, so who's going to have that story? I was going to say, how do you decide like, okay, it's you, Cindy, that takes this one or you, Jenny, that takes this one? Right. Well, if it was really personal, uh, you know, ideally you were going to be the one writing that episode, but also it was, you know, a matter of, let's say we have five different writing entities and then so you're breaking the episodes. Everybody gets one of those first five. So it's partly just so you're not all writing and then you have time to get back in the room. And so it's sometimes divided, like, okay, who wants this one? Or if you pitched the most ideas about it, or if it just seems relatable to your life. Like I remember um, Julie Rottenberg and Elisa Zaritsky that Julie had been dating her now husband forever and mm -hmm. just never wanted to get married and actually did like break out in hives one morning when she had like had a dream that they did get married or something. And so they wrote like the wedding dress one where Carrie yep. breaks out in hives. So a lot of times are very personal ones you, you would write, but, um, but also sometimes you just got assigned. Like I remember our, we had a board for, for um, just funny sex ideas. And, and that's, uh, that's just my dream job. <laughs> like literally who wouldn't want to be in that writer's room? Seriously. Well, so uh up the butt was uh not up that <laughs> wait not up the butt actually um it was like took us lingus that yeah, was, God, was like yeah. that you was wrote, that, wrote that episode that was yeah. you got that one that was the big coffee shop discussion we were like who decided this was something women wanted um <laughs> so that one was on the board for a long time none of us really wanted to do it there was there were certain things that you'd say like has anybody then have you had which you could kind of express in the coffee table scenes but you hopefully everyone's like oh my god yes but sometimes you're worried it's just going to be like no that's weird <laughs> so that one was one that we all were like a little uncomfortable with which was what was fun about writing that coffee shop because it was like a little uncomfortable even to these women but I forgot what episode I was writing that was kind of about uh communication and like uh and that was it, it felt like it fit in there somehow and so I was like Michael goes Cindy you can do kind of like but I was like oh my god I have to do I mean <laughs> took a slink so anyway that's sometimes how it worked and then and then that same writer's room. So on Sex in the City, we would start in LA in a writer's room because a lot of us lived there. And then we would move to New York when it was time for pre-production. And that's when you would do 
casting and you'd still be in the writer's room, but then there would be casting sessions for the roles and all these meetings with departments and stuff. But yeah. the um, we would keep writing and on most shows, the scripts go back to the writer's room, like on Modern Family. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of punch up in the writer's room. So there would be a script and then it would be about to film. So it would be like, let's all go through this once and add jokes and make it funnier and better. Mm-hmm. That's normal. It was a little abnormal and kind of great on Sex in the City that our scripts stayed very much our um, our drafts, really. They were pretty respectfully everybody was a really good writer and it wasn't all about the punchline so there wasn't that process of like let's all get in there and pitch on it which was felt very grown up and nice <laughs> well, and probably especially a good thing because those sex in the city episodes were probably very personal like that was probably like at least a bit of like art becoming like reality you know or reality yeah. art and so if somebody like to have to, to have a table sit around and dissect something potentially really painful or really embarrassing that happened to you in your life. And then like dissect it and say, no, we need to change that. That's not funny enough. It's like what my pain isn't funny. enough. (laughs) That would be tough. But it's funny because that is kind of what would happen in the breaking of the story. So if I was going to be doing an episode, um, then when we're all together in the room talking about it, if you know you're writing that episode, you're taking a lot of notes and there's tons of great jokes and ideas that come out of the room. And then you put together an out, like a beat sheet and then an outline. So you've got the benefit of everybody's humor, mind stories, like, you know, that's already happened, but then you're kind of doing the best of in your script as opposed to mm-hmm. afterwards. And it, uh, but I think you're right. It is partly because they were well, not just personal, but these were more emotional stories underneath all the fun. And so it wasn't just something you like go in and make, you know, where can we add a joke or mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't that sort of a thing. It was more like as the emotional thing working and do we believe this? And and then we would do a table read with the actors of every script. Mm-hmm. And then based on that, sometimes the actors would have ideas or Sarah Jessica would say, I feel like I played this already or I mm-hmm. feel like I'd be a little smarter here. But basically they stayed pretty intact. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, that's just, you blew my mind a little bit because of course I'm a writer and of course I get edited all the time as all writers do, but I don't get edited while I'm sitting there while, you know, eight <laughs> or so people are dissecting every word. And, and then, and then we go to the table read and then I'm listening to people read my words out loud yeah. and say, no, I don't like that. Like that's, that's, so I'm not a screenwriter, never have been, but that's a whole other level of of having to have a tough skin as a writer, because every writer has to have a tough skin. There's never been a writer who turns in perfect copy and it's completely cleaner. None, no writers that I know of anyway, but it, right. has, it has to be a really, like you have to have a really tough skin to, because those are your words, right? And my words are my words. And I, and I'm a little, no, I've, I've this is lessened as I've gotten deeper into my career, but I'm, I used to be a little precious about my words. Like that was my those, that's my my work. And so it has to be tough to have it not even criticized, but just, you know, critiqued like that. That's, I don't know if I could do it. Now that I think about it, I don't know if I could do my dream <laughs> Well, you know what? It's, it's harder for me when it's an essay. Like the essays, the, what I did actually, the reason I wrote a book is because when I had a glamour column on dating, they would often want to make it kind of more chipper and end with advice. And I felt like I really wanted to just be commiserating. That's kind of when I realized that I wanted to do more of what 
we were doing in Sex in the City was not really preaching, just sort of looking at what we all do and and having a lot of opinions about it that mm-hmm. weren't, didn't necessarily land. So I started saving, and I still do this, what I call the book draft. Even if I don't know if there's going to be a book, I save like my draft and keep it. And I call it the book draft. And then, and then I'm like, okay, I can edit. Glamour can change this and make it whatever they think it needs to be, but I will always have my book draft. And that just happened to me with a piece I did that was, I started it with 8,000 words on this horrible summer I've had and this terrible mm-hmm. breakup and trip. And and then I sold it to L.com because it was online, I thought. So there's more room. So even though they asked for just 2,000 words, I was like, I was got it down to like 5,000 and thought they would just appreciate the gift of 3,000 extra free words, you know, mm, right. but there's a new editor there and she felt, um, she just wanted it the length they wanted it. So I, it was just easier to cut down knowing, okay, I've got my 9,000 word book draft. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's I know actually a that great is. tip. That's a great tip because, you know, I'm the same way. Like I write something and I'm an, I'm brevity is not my strong suit as a writer or as a person honestly Uh but I I really you know when it's not your story it's a lot easier to cut and those cuts have hurt me in the past you know like they hurt my heart a little bit because you know I'm like well that to me was such an important part of the story and you know I don't know if it translated but um I want to talk about this because I I wasn't planning on asking this but you just brought this up and um Elisa Zaritsky Julie Rottenberg two amazing writers they worked on the show they always worked as a team right they were Uh it was always the two of them and so you often worked solo but I know you did um at least one or two with Jenny Bix and one or yeah, two well, with Michael Patrick King. And so mm-hmm. as a writer, when you're writing for a show, is it easier to write solo or with a co-writer? Cause I never write, I never, maybe I'm just an Island unto myself over here, but I, <laughs> I never really have a co-writer. And I, and I think that would be a really kind of difficult skill to learn. It can be Julie and Elisa were friends since they were nine. They went to oh, theater wow. camp together. They're, uh, they do each do half the outline and then put it together, trade halves, and then they do half the script and they trade halves. And so they, they've done that. When I worked with a partner for seven years, we actually sat at the computer together. I usually typed, but she would be pitching. I could sort of like, just not put it in if I didn't love it. Like I just wouldn't be typing, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, it's still difficult. And I got to a point, that's why I wanted to go on my own is like, I sort of started to feel like there was just this extra voice in my ear that I didn't want. Cause I sort of knew what I wanted to write. And it was distracting rather than helpful. And I think it was because I had learned enough by then. But um, with a great collaboration, it can be great. Like I know Julie and Elisa, they're, you know, two, one plus one equals three. Mm-hmm. So, but if you prefer solo, right? I, I like, since I mostly solo write, I sometimes like collaborating. It was fun to collaborate on those scripts that I did for Sex and the City. And I've done it in a few other places too. And it, it can be really fun because I'm, you know, it's usually just me now. But uh, so it depends. But I would say TV, you kind of do have to be less precious about it unless you're somebody who's the writer. You know, there's a lot of people now coming out of indie film who are writing their entire series. And in other countries, that happens a lot. And then Mm -hmm. you have more control. But I am. I would say that it can be additive is the way to think about it in a writer's room. Mm -hmm. Like I, if you're working with writers, you really respect, you get some great ideas and great pitches and you feel like part of a team, like you're supported. So when there is a table read, everybody's invested. So it can be good for that reason. The, Mm -hmm. the first sex in the city script I wrote, and that was after working in television seven years, that chicken dance script, 
that like came off my printer. Like it had my margins and my typos <laughs> if I had any, basically like that's what they read at the table. And I remember when I realized that because I had never experienced that. It was always rewritten or, mm -hmm. um, or punched up or whatever. I was like, oh my God, if this doesn't go well, <laughs> this is right. all on me. Right. <laughs> it right. was actually really scary kind of calling your bluff. And it made me realize how I appreciate when like everybody's kind of invested for whatever reason. So, well, when you work on a long show like Modern Family Sex in the City, Everybody Loves Raymond, I would assume that you and the other writers become very close. So, do you still keep in touch with the other show writers or the producers or the cast from any of your shows? And I should also make mention that um, on Sex in the City, at least, you were also an executive producer of the show. So, that's a whole other job right there. But do you keep in touch with other writers throughout the years once the show once yeah. the show ends? Yeah, I mean, Sex in the City were. I really like that whole group of women and we kind of stayed and Michael Patrick King, we've all stayed close over the years. And even as we've done different things, like I still feel like that team is intact. Um, you know, like we are all, we could all go out as a group and have a really good time from other shows. I feel like I've stayed friends with, you know, some, like I've made at least a few good friends on every show and, mm -hmm. and often stay in touch with the actors and then uh, on Raymond, that was a really close group. And Phil Rosendahl, who ran it, he does these Sunday night movie nights still. And that that gang of people, I still really like. And it, it's fun to see them together. But I was on there two years. It ran for a long time. So other writers came in and out. It wasn't quite the same, uh, just like small group that felt like we divulged so much of our personal lives mm -hmm. together. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I'm thinking of you sitting down at your computer to write, you know, in an episode of the, of the show, we'll just pick on sex in the city or actually modern family, any of these shows. I mean, you've written some for some iconic shows and is there, is there a pressure there knowing that so many people will, will be watching? I mean, obviously you're writing and then there's going to be iterations. There's going to be redrafts, revisions before it obviously gets to the screen. But I, I think that pressure, like knowing that I'm writing for like, let's take modern family. And this is one of the biggest shows of the last 10 years. Uh -huh. That's a lot of pressure to know that you, like if you can't mess this up right and so do you is that a lot of pressure to sit down and write do you think do you think about the fact that because I mean I hope people read my work in Marie Claire but they're not reading it to the level well, maybe they're not I'll just say that to the level of like modern family watch like viewership so that does that ever feel like pressure you know it's funny I hadn't thought about it but it's the opposite when you're on a big show because it already has an audience that loves these characters and you can kind of hear the characters in your head, like Modern Family, you can imagine how they would react to things and their voices, you can just hear them. It was really clearly defined, same with Raymond, same with Sex in the City. So you kind of are like stepping into a well-oiled machine and it's almost easier because you, there is a huge audience that just loves these people. And there's other people backstopping if, you know, it's not a great script that they'll, mm -hmm. you know, you'll fix it or they'll give you good notes on it. So, so less that than when I've written shows that are pilots that then are going to go to actors to try to get them to commit to being on this show for many years or whatever, <laughs> um, because that's your script and you don't know yet if it's great or who's going to respond to it or, and then when they do, like the few I've had a few shows on the air that didn't last long. And then I did like a pilot. I've done a lot of pilots where the actors are signing on to stay with it for a long time. And you feel really responsible to them if the show doesn't get picked up or just that it's good enough because they've 
you know, trusted you. That feels like way more pressure to me. And I have to say, that's probably why I've been mostly just participating in shows that exist. <laughs> right. Because I actually find it really fun. I don't mind trying to, it doesn't need to be my creation. And I actually appreciate not having that whole thing on my back that, you know, I'm the, I'm where the buck stops. I would rather be like a great vice president. <laughs> you know what? There is nothing wrong with that, by the way. I think that is so un- undervalued. Someone that is totally okay and loves to lean into being a number two. I think that's fantastic. And you, I mean, yeah. and you, when you, when you had your own, you know, episodes, you were the number one on that episode, but you know, you weren't, you didn't have to be the showrunner to make a difference. I think that's important yeah. to know. Yeah. The showrunner is a whole different level of uh, responsibility and anxiety. And there's usually one or partners that, you know, and I've, and so when I was an exec producer, I was one of the top writers and I was involved in just about everything, mm-hmm. including like pitching to HBO and casting and, you know, watching cuts. And so you're involved in everything, but you're not the final, <laughs> the final arbiter or the one who has to defend things right. to, the cast, to the cast or has to take the calls from the network when they're really upset or, you know, like has to break into people or fire people or that's, uh, that's all in the showrunner. So that's a, that's a lot of responsibility. And the few times I, like I had a show called Madigan men that was on for like one season mm-hmm. with Gabriel, Gabriel Byrne in it. Um, the difference between running the writer's room and doing the rewrite when a script wasn't working and then knowing that you were going to be the one the next morning when the actors got it, if they didn't like it, they were going to come to you. If it didn't need more rewriting, if this network didn't like it, they were going to be calling you. HBO was much more hands-off, but network shows, they can really be all over it with notes. And so the difference between staying late for a rewrite, but going home and going to sleep and just coming back to work in the morning is so different than running the room for that rewrite and deciding what's going in and what's not going in. And then having to answer to everyone the next day. You know, I would rather not be the showrunner. Like I would rather be able to enjoy everything in the writer's room and have my creativity flow and not have that added pressure. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. That's what I kind of came to like, I, now that there's mini series and shorter seasons, like maybe it would seem more appealing to do like a, you know, a six episode arc and run that. But the, the network shows that, you know, it was a great gig, but those were like 24 episodes a year. And Mm -hmm. that was hard to be in charge of. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, I'm thinking of all the characters you've written characters that we would know, do you have a character that you most related to that, um, that really kind of felt like writing yourself? Um, I mean, I think the sex in the city characters really all four of them felt like aspects of myself at different times. And so they were all really fun to relate to. I mean, mm-hmm. Charlotte, I still, I do have a hopefulness, like a sort of an undying optimism. And me I'm too. Me too. Sure. Yeah. Right. That's so bit that's me the in the butt many times, by the way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> me too. <laughs> that's serving us. I think I wrote something like, is optimism, uh, it was like, is it something we need to not, I can't remember how I worded it, but it was like, maybe it's not working. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, um, yeah, it, like sometimes I still feel hopeful like Charlotte, but I thought Miranda getting in her own way was very relatable usually and kind of making, just being the butt of your own joke, doing things mm-hmm. wrong and carry the writerly part of it and kind of the heart of it. 
I loved. And then, uh, yeah, there's definitely periods of my life where I've been Samantha. Hey, I've been my Samantha era right now and I'm unapologetic <laughs> about it. So um, was there a storyline that you've written again on Sex and the City or, or elsewhere that, um, or even in your own essay and memoir work or columns that was there a storyline that was the most difficult for you to write that was extra challenging? Um, well, yeah, you know, speaking of, like, I have written really personal stuff in, in between you boyfriends. You have. I'll, yes, that's tough. That's hard. And, I've done that a little bit. I right. prefer to, much prefer to write about someone else. But yes, that is it's really hard to put your, it's very vulnerable. But I feel like I am the, I can tell my story my way and I can defend it and I can control how I'm, which details I'm giving. And I'm, I'm pretty honest, but I also, also try to make it really about what what I did as opposed to it's never like revenge on what a guy did or something you know so I think you have to be writing aware that you're talking I actually always imagine I'm just talking to friends and mm-hmm. I don't think about the big audience and I and I don't think about people who are gonna like not like it <laughs> I no, don't I, imagine, know. Like- I would think like oh my gosh this person's <laughs> gonna read this and they're gonna get so angry at me and I would that would that would stifle my creativity I think Right. I've been careful about that. I usually like I'll use other names or just first names or uh, add a really nice detail about someone like this is super handsome and charming and blah, blah, blah. Who did this? You know? Right. Men, men can be easily distracted, but they do always find it. Like I have definitely found people. Oh, yeah. I, wrote, but I was like, how are they going to find this in some women's magazine? Then some girl will be in her gynecologist's office and see it and tell them that it's always found. They always find it. I have so, thought so many times over my dating history, God, if I only had the guts to Taylor Swift, every last <laughs> one of you, you right. would really, really, you deserve it. But I, I have not yet done that. And I don't think I ever will, but I don't think I have yeah. the guts, honestly, because it takes courage to do that, you know? Yeah. But I think I'm uh, trying to mine my own uh, vulnerability. I think family is really hard to write about because mm, yeah. you do care a lot. And then it's getting a little harder, like, because I have Olivia and now that me and her father have divorced, I don't, yes, I want to be careful. That's so tough. Yeah. I want to be careful how I want to talk about him and our marriage. Cause, and even her, like she's, she actually likes it. She kind of like gets a kick out of when she's part of my stories. And I've been mm-hmm. doing some travel writing and I've written pieces that include her. And I said, if you ever don't want me to talk about you, just tell me like, if you don't want this and it's not totally fair. Cause maybe she's going to grow up and go, well, I didn't know better. Like why well, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. So I try to be careful and judicious about how I talk about her, but I do like including her in my stories. Well, and I haven't huge part of your life. That's your daughter, you know? Yeah. But I'm not trying to write about I know some mothers have written uh more personal pieces like when their kids are going through more personal stuff and I'm gonna I won't I won't do that or I'll have, yeah. I'll have both I'll do that <laughs> well because some of that is your story to tell but some of that's not your story to tell it yeah that's what yeah. you have to decide is it your story to tell and I just I just went through a breakup that was so hard and I was like this is the first time I thought I don't know if I should tell because it's kind of going to make his life worse maybe but then I love that Anne Lamott quote that is like, if people wanted you to write nice things, if people wanted you to write more warmly about them, they should have behaved better. 
<laughs> and Anne Lamott, you are right. You are absolutely right. And so right? you're gonna you're gonna throw Anne Lamott into the conversation. I'll throw Nora Ephron in. Everything is copy. Every yeah, writer, every, especially in 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 what in the type of writing that you do, everything is copy. Everything that you experience, good, bad, indifferent, ugly, it all. I mean, look. I think Sex in the City, the entire series, is mostly made up of people's bad dates and bad relationship, and yeah. and, and good. But you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the bad date you went on once and that you were like cringing about for weeks is now something that millions on millions of people can relate to and feel seen through, and that's pretty powerful. But well, it's there, yeah, it's therapeutic actually, and not, and not, you shouldn't be using it for therapy. But I mean, I shouldn't be. The writer shouldn't <laughs> be, because you want to be careful not to just, you know, be too much, too much information about yourself or something mm-hmm. that's not relatable. But I will say, it's healing, I think, for the audience, but also for the writer because you feel yes. really seen and like, okay, other people are going through this and maybe it can be not so terrible that I went through this because it can be healing, like kind of gives you a reason to be okay about hard things as well. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I mean, I assume it's very cathartic. I mean, I haven't written any memoirs uh, or, or essay books, but you know, when, when someone reads in particular, let's say, you know, your books, your three books, I'm sure that you've been reached out to many times with someone that has experienced something similar and they say that they feel seen and that, that to me would say, man, if I could only impact one person like that, then maybe that was worth it that I went through that because I made someone feel seen, but you are, you are a writer's writer. As I said, as we, as unfortunately I could talk to you forever. So I think you should teach classes, by the way, I think you should go (laughs) like to Northwestern, your alma mater or Kansas, my alma mater, never Mizzou, because that's our rival. Just kidding. (laughs) But, um, and teach like, and teach classes. Like I would attend, um, like I would attend a seminar that you offered on zoom or what I would pay money for this. For you, to get <laughs> I, you know, I might, I might do that. I was just talking to Zippy Owens who has moms who, Oh, I love her. Oh my gosh. I love her. She I just in her podcast too. It's great. Right. She just interviewed me for her podcast and she has a whole empire of like uh, classes, but they're really good. Like she really cares about the books, the writers, and also the audience, you know, does it for all the right reasons. Like, I think there's a lot of just money making, uh, classes and coaches and things, but I I, did, I just thought about that because I've taught a few different times, different mm-hmm. ways, and at NYU for a little bit and mm-hmm. and done like seminars. But so maybe maybe we'll do. No, it I absolutely think you should, and you would <laughs> you would not be the type of person that would just give you know one percent and charge a hundred percent, right? You, I think it would yeah. probably be the opposite. Like I think that you're because you already are giving this away for free on your website, and listeners go check out her website. I'll link that in the show notes as well. But right at the and as we start to close our time together, which I hate because you're amazing. But at the top of the homepage of your website, you write, I do my best writing when I don't have the answers, which is almost always, I mean, that's truth telling right there, but is that your best advice for aspiring writers? Because there's, um, you know, we are both very blessed. I'm nowhere near your level, but we're, we're successful writers. I always say that everyone is a writer. Some of us just get paid for it. And so what would you say to an aspiring writer at the very beginning of their career? Would that be your best advice? them um well I'd say if you have it in you to write something personal uh like modern love column in New York Times I have the link to that or tell a moth story that's a personal story that's only yours that can kind of show your your um voice not your actual voice that too but it's almost like a way to meet people without meeting them and to put Mm -hmm. out your sense of humor because my first piece I guess I'm I've always 
I didn't send, I didn't do it as a calling card in any way. I just was excited to try to write a piece and sell it, but it did start a lot of things. And like, if you can write and there's always directions on how to submit to any magazine or newspaper or website on online just look for mm-hmm. like submission requirements I think that's a good way to start because to me especially modern love columns a lot of them have been optioned to make books or even optioned as tv mm-hmm. ideas or they have the now the show that does those stories but they force you to really fi- think of one incident in your life that because I know a lot of people think I should write a book or I should create a show about this but if you really had to like encapsulate one great story that it was like when your life changed or why you learned something or something, mm-hmm. how you contextualize like a really a crisis point. And then uh, that's like a really good start as opposed to being overwhelmed with like, how do I do, how would I make a whole series out of this? <laughs> that's a great point. Just start. And even like you said, even if it's just column by column, just start with one column. And if that turns into a book, great. But I think it's overwhelming to think of writing an entire book when maybe just break it down to a moderate right. column and then yeah, or even, another even one. like a, yeah like even a letter to the editor can sometimes be funny and be your perspective and those little things I think help gain you gain confidence exactly get your voice out there and so then you have that when you have other opportunities well and one of the reasons why I am a late bloomer number one is probably that I graduated from college in 2009 in the middle of the great recession and I was told magazines are dying newspapers are dying but really if I'm honest number two would be I really struggled with writer's block in college when I was in J school I was up until four o'clock in the morning, sometimes looking at the blinking cursor, it's because I hadn't developed my confidence yet in in my writing. I have Mm -hmm. that. I have that now. And and just like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, anything that you do over and over again, whether it's um, a skill like cooking or running, you're going to get better at it the more you practice. And it's the same way with writing. And so, yeah, just start small. Don't overwhelm yourself and just keep doing it. Just do it. I try to write. I mean, I write for a living, but try to write in in my personal journal, which no one may ever read, try to do that. It, uh, my therapist actually gave me this advice. She said, anchor in, I'm in a season right now where everything is up in the air. And she said, anchor your day and have at least 40 minutes that are dependable that, you know, will be the same every day, 20 minutes in the morning, get up and write. It doesn't have to be anything publishable and none of it probably will be. And then 20 minutes at the end of the day, right. And in a season of so much uncertainty, that has provided some real grounding for me. So I would recommend that to everyone as well. But I, again, but I guess I, be- think, I think I would add to that, write as if you're writing for friends, if you want to write comedy, especially, but whatever you want to write, like write mm-hmm. as if you're telling a really good friend what you want to tell them about whatever you're writing and don't get caught up in your writing a novel or yeah. a chapter. Like, just think like, Cause I actually, people hardly write emails anymore, but before I feel like I've been doing this so long, Mm -hmm. I used to write really funny emails back to my friends about things. Like when I was away on teaching newspaper, like just funny stories. And that, those are the kind of things I ended up realizing I wanted to write and could write. And so I think that's another thing is just realize, like, don't think of it like you're writing a writing mm-hmm. assignment, just like, what would you be telling friends? What's, what's the long version of the mm-hmm. story that you're trying to tell? Or why, how would you explain whatever you're trying to explain? Yeah, take that pressure off a little bit and just let you shine through. I yeah. love that. Well, my last question for you, you know, as far as, I mean, you've just had the best career, three books, 
all of these shows. I mean, I haven't even named all of them. You've got divorce coach. I mean, I remember coach, by the way, that was a great show. That was in my child. That was in my childhood. That was a fan. Craig, Craig T. Nelson. Like we're like, we're just skimming the, the amazingness of your vast career. But as far as your writing career goes from books to the columns, to the screenwriting has, have you had a mountaintop moment? Have you had a moment that, I mean, I, I would imagine winning golden globes and Emmys would probably factor into your mountaintop moments, but you know, have you had a moment that, and maybe it's not, maybe those are the obvious ones, but maybe, you know, something smaller has just been the moment that encapsulated your career. And you're like, gosh, I'm so fortunate to be doing this work. What is, what is a moment out of your career? And maybe there's more than one that you've just said, man, I'm so happy to be doing this work as a writer. Well, I think there's a section of my website um, where I did talk about on the TV and film section about things that never became anything that were crazy experiences, like mm -hmm. a, a table read that I had where Mike Nichols was going to direct the screenplay I'd written That's and crazy. got together. And that didn't ever become a movie. So that table read with those actors and with Mike Nichols, who's such a great director, oh, yeah. um, reading, reading my words. Uh, that like was something only those of us in the room experienced. So that's, it's kind of like, I think a lot of people think of that, as, those moments as failures, these things that didn't happen. Like the, I also tried to create a television show with Elton John about an aging gay rock star. He was writing the music for it. So I got to ride around on his jet and be backstage. Casual, casual. <laughs> crazy things that didn't become a show so was that a failure like to me it's like wow I, that's an amazing experience but I will say I think my mountaintop experience I never thought about it this way that I haven't written about is um when I, I it took me a long time to get up the nerve to direct and then I directed this movie Otherhood for Netflix that mm -hmm. that I co-wrote oh, yeah. yeah yeah I'm very familiar yeah it was like a 10-year journey to get that made and when we had the premiere we were at the Egyptian in LA and I was the person and I had Angela Bassett and Patricia Arquette Amazing. and this great cast. And I was a person standing up, like I've been to so many movie screenings where I was the director <laughs> talking about my cast. And then there was a giant party and I really felt like, wow, I made this thing happen. And I'm really proud of that film, but just that, I think that was like maybe the most heady, weird experience that I was the director announcing this film because it took me a long time to ever imagine that I could. And then to finally have the film done and getting out there and have all the cast there like, celebrating it and have a big party. It was really something. And that was, of course, like my husband had just told me he wanted a divorce. So that's the way my life goes. <laughs> that is the way life is though. But that's the great thing about life though, is that it's pretty balanced. I've learned in my 37 years. And so whenever you go through a real bad season, like I've just kind of walking through right now, I'm like, this is okay. This is terrible, but the pendulum's going to swing the other way and something yeah. good's going to happen. So you get, you know, you're going through a divorce, but then, you know, Mike Nichols and Meryl Streep, I remember the Meryl Streep anecdote. That's, I mean, just like, that's, I just, can't even imagine you're just sitting there going, my gosh, I'm, I know you're from Tulsa. I am from Topeka, Kansas. So we are both Midwestern. <laughs> yeah. I am from Topeka, Kansas, and I am interviewing XYZ person and how and why, but I'm just so thankful. So yeah. 
I celebrate your career, the whole thing. And look, there is so much more that you have left to give. And I'm going to be reading and watching every word of it. And to say it was an honor to have you here is an understatement. You are one of the people that made me want to become a writer as that little 12 year old girl with her finger on the power button of the white TV in 1998, praying to God that no one caught me. And I never was caught by the way, just for the record, <laughs> I, I was wow. good. I was good at sneaking around, I guess. <laughs> but um, th- thank you for the lesson in womanhood. That is sex in the city. That is your memoirs. I, like I said, listeners read the whole arc because there's no way you're not going to learn something about yourself, woman or man. It was fantastic talking to you today. Thank you so much for being here. You too. Thank you so much for having me. That was so much fun. We don't have a ton of television writers on the show. I'm sure we've had couple of authors or writers on the show in 116 or 117 episodes that have dabbled in TV or film writing or script writing of some sort, but this is not typically our genre. This was phenomenal. And I want to tell you here a little about Cindy's 16 episodes that she wrote or co-wrote for Sex and the City and give you the highlights for each. If you are an avid viewer of the show, as I am, you will remember all of these episodes. So her first credit was during season two, as she mentioned in the show, the episode was called The Chicken Dance. This aired on July 18th, 1999. And in this episode, Miranda inadvertently sets her interior designer up with a could-be boyfriend. I remember this episode, how quickly they got married and everyone else is struggling to do the same on the show. They marry after only four weeks. And also in this episode, Samantha experiences deja screw and sleeps with a man she previously did 15 years ago. So still in season two, Cindy also wrote Evolution. This one was nominated for an Emmy, one of the six. This episode aired August 15th, 1999. This is when Carrie started leaving some personal items at Big's place. Miranda finds out that one of her ovaries has stopped producing eggs and Charlotte is dating Stefan, the pastry chef. Remember that? So moving on to season three now, she wrote Attack of the Five Foot Ten Woman, again nominated for an Emmy. This one aired on June 18th, 2000, and is probably most memorable for Carrie running into Natasha, who of course by this time was Biggs either, I think she was his wife by this time, or his, definitely his girl, but I'm pretty sure his wife. Then on July 16th, 2000, her episode, Are We Sluts, aired. This is one where Miranda finds out she has chlamydia and has to tell her past sexual partners. Remember that? Charlotte's new boyfriend calls her names during sex. Definitely remember that. And Samantha's neighbors get upset with her after a late night visitor lets in a burglar. And still in season three, her Don't Ask, Don't Tell episode aired on August 27th, 2000. This is the episode where Charlotte marries Trey. So that's a big milestone episode in the series. So then, jumping into season four now, on July 1st, 2001, her episode Baby Talk is Cheap aired, where Carrie realizes she wants to get back with Aiden. Charlotte and Trey decide to start trying to have a baby. Another Emmy-nominated episode aired on August 12th, 2001. That one was called Just Say Yes. Aiden proposes to Carrie in this episode. So again, another huge plot point in the series. Samantha starts sleeping with Richard Wright. That in in and of itself is a major plot point in the series as well. And Miranda tells Steve she's pregnant. That's a huge episode. Still in season four, but jumping to January 13th, 2002, Cindy wrote All That Glitters, in which Charlotte and Trey separate. And Samantha tells Richard she's in love with him. Well, of course, high on ecstasy. And then, okay, so now season five. Cindy wrote Unoriginal Sin. 
that aired on July 28, 2002, Carrie gets a book deal for her column and is asked by Miranda to become Brady's godmother. And in the same episode, Samantha takes Richard back, even though the girls advise her against doing so. And then on August 18, 2002, another Emmy-nominated episode, Plus One is the Loneliest Number, aired. Samantha gets the infamous chemical peel. I know you remember this if you watch the show. And Carrie invites the infamous burger to her book launch party. So this is the beginning of the burger relationship, which of course ended in a post-it note. Then Cindy and Michael Patrick King also co-wrote the season five finale that aired on September 8th, 2002. That was also nominated for an Emmy. This one is called I Love a Charade. This is the one where the girls are in the Hamptons. Carrie runs into Burger again. Charlotte goes public with her relationship with Harry. And Samantha throws that big party at Richard's house. If you, if you know, you know. Finally, season six, which of course is the show's final season. Cindy wrote Great Sexpectations that aired on June 29th, 2003. This episode is when Samantha meets Smith Jared at that cold food restaurant and Charlotte pursues converting to Judaism for Harry. Then on August 10th, 2003, The Catch aired. Harry accidentally sees Charlotte in her wedding dress before their wedding. And then on August 24th, 2003, we have Boy Interrupted. Miranda gets a crush on her neighbor, Robert, who is the team doctor of the Knicks. This is also the episode where Samantha pretends to be Annabelle Bronstein to get into Soho House, which, spoiler alert, comes up again in a hilarious way in And Just Like That Season 2, the episode when Kim Cattrall guest stars. So jumping ahead to January 18th, 2004, Catch 38 sees Carrie discovering that Alexander Petrovsky doesn't want to have any more kids, and Samantha uses Smith's fame to get into a well-known oncologist. In the final episode Cindy wrote for the show, she mentioned this in our conversation, was Splat. She co-wrote that one with Jenny Bix, and that aired on February 8, 2004. Only two episodes after that were to go in the entire series. So this episode was also nominated for an Emmy, and it is when Alexander Petrovsky hosts a dinner party for Carrie's friends, and the one where Lexi Featherston, played by Kirsten Johnson, falls out of the window and dies, and it kind of makes everyone reevaluate their lives. So this show, look, this is my favorite show of all time. Cindy's writing such a force in pop culture. Again, not just on Sex and the City, but Modern Family, Everybody Loves Raymond. I mean, so many bold-faced titles. I hope you enjoyed listening to a little behind the scenes of the writing process and just learning more about what it's like to be a writer for successful shows and memoirs and essays. It's just, she's a fascinating person and I so enjoyed the conversation. And there is more soon in season eight of I'd Rather Be Reading. Stay tuned.